Welcome to the Blue Earth Podcast, brought to you by Future Frogmen, a nonprofit organization working to protect our ocean. I'm John Sherburn, I'm the show's producer, and today's guest is Jill Heinarth. Jill is a brave explorer who specializes in cave diving. Her amazing book, Into the Planet, details how she's overcome her fears in order to excel at life and travel to underwater places where no one has gone before. Let's get into it. Jill, welcome to the Blue Earth Podcast. Thanks. It's great to be here we, with you. <laughs> yeah, it's it's great to uh, we're on Zoom actually recording, and it's it's great to see you. Mm. I, I assume you are in uh, your home in Ontario, Canada. Yes, near near Ottawa. Mm-hmm. Yeah, last we spoke was uh, last year it was actually our, our good friend Ellen Coilarts who uh, hosted a video conversation with you, and I believe you were in a hotel somewhere as you were uh, running around the world on your book tour. Oh, yes, <laughs> that's right. Boy, how things have changed in a year. <laughs> yeah. They cer- certainly have. Well, thank you for agreeing to speak with us again. I'm excited to catch up with you and uh, hear what you've been up to and mm-hmm. and also dive deeper into some of the subjects that you previously discussed with Ellen. It's challenging to speak with you as you already have shared so many Great words and content uh, via your website, your podcast, your 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 many books, and even TED talks. Um, <clears throat> but as my producer says, let's get into it. All right. <laughs> so, uh, so Jill, with uh, first of all, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. These are unusual, unprecedented times for sure. <laughs> but uh, we're adapting. We're healthy. We're well, and uh, all good things. I gathered that. Uh, uh, I was listening to some of your podcasts, and um, I gather that you and Robert are staying very close to home in this COVID environment. We are. We are. Well, you know, the Canadian yeah. border's closed, and so <laughs> so travel's pretty pretty challenging. Um, even parts of Canada are sort of isolated from other parts of Canada just to keep everyone safe. But um, but there's a lot we can do it at home. I mean, once an explorer, always an explorer, whether you've got the ability to jump on a plane or not. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I noticed uh, I, I was enjoying your recent, uh, some social media posts about your exploring, maybe not in the backyard, but maybe you can tell us a little how, uh-huh. how close in your vicinity you were, uh, you were filming and taking photographs of beavers. Oh, yeah. Actually, it is almost in my backyard. (laughs) Yeah, there's uh, some beavers building a dam and a big lodge for the winter. And uh, they seem to be uh, fairly tolerant with me just sort of hanging out. And uh, after I've been there for a little while, they just kind of go back to their work and let me uh, film them. So that was kind of exciting. Yeah, there's some wonderful photographs you've taken. Oh, thanks. And uh, it it reminded me of... uh, when uh, Cousteau actually made a, a film in Saskatchewan, northern Saskatchewan, uh, on beavers. It was a period, it was 1973, and uh, the organization was uh, in a little bit of financial distress, so it was a easier expedition to do than going to sea with the ship and a full crew, mm-hmm. you know, a, a smaller, rare land expedition. So, uh, pretty interesting creatures, though, aren't they? They sure are. Yeah, and and uh, you know I've seen plenty through my lifetime, but never had an opportunity to be quite so close for so long. So I, I'm I'm actually going to head back there today. <laughs> are you? <laughs> yeah. And uh, I, I noticed that uh, on your on Wikipedia page, it said one of the 
favorite things you like to do is uh, get up early in the morning and cycle to uh, the Santa Fe River and, and swim in that. Do, do you uh, do you still do that? Well, so when I was living in Florida, that was sort of my morning routine. Now I'm uh, I'm, yeah. now I'm on the Mississippi River, uh, Canada's Mississippi River, which is a completely different one. Um, and and yeah, I do swim quite a bit <laughs> in the morning. And I, I live right on the Trans Canada Trail, so I ride my bike or. Or, uh, go for hikes and uh, I'm very very fortunate to live in a place with a lot of natural beauty and a lot of opportunities to jump in the water or just get out in the wild. That's cool you're a real water person mm-hmm. uh, uh, all the way from when you were a child uh, I was reading that uh, I was a little surprised to read this but uh, in, in, in a way not surprised because uh, um, people like you have been inspired by the great Captain Jacques Cousteau. Mm-hmm. As a child, Absolutely. you found him to be an inspiration. How did Captain Cousteau inspire you? Well, I mean, Captain Cousteau was in our living rooms every Sunday <laughs> when I was a kid, you know, and I, I grew up at a time when we just had two television channels. And so it was um, more of a, you know, a media experience that everybody shared. So Sunday nights was that was the one night where we could eat our dinner in front of the television because normally it was around the table in the kitchen with the family. Uh, but my parents thought it was important enough to to watch this great educational program. And I would go to school Monday morning and every other kid would have seen that same program and we'd talk about it. So uh, it, it was a huge influence for me and, and really my generation and, you know, formed a, a uh, the groundwork for for those of us that love the outdoor world. Yeah, I can relate to that mm-hmm. for sure. Um, and uh, it's it's funny. I, I, I've it, it always pleases me, but still to some extent surprises me when I when I hear people that were inspired by him because he was a great man mm-hmm. for sure. There were, I was at Boston Sea Rovers a few years ago and uh, had the opportunity to speak there, and and I was signing some books, and this woman came up to me and said. You know, when I was a child uh, and my brother and I were uh, misbehaving on Sunday afternoon, my mother would say, if you don't behave, I'm not going to let you watch The Undersea World of Jacques Cousteau tonight. <laughs> Isn't that funny? <laughs> I, thought that w- I thought it was hilarious. Yeah. I love that you're, uh, a lot of your work is in saltwater, freshwater, brackish water, um, which is uh, consistent with what we care about at Future Frogmen. All all water mm-hmm. is connected, as I know you mm-hmm. you feel. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, I I was f- laughing earlier as I was preparing. I was listening to your podcast episode twenty four, where Robert asked you ten questions. Oh. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> and then I looked at I looked at my preparation list, and it actually was ten questions. Oh, funny. Uh, but it was. Uh, more like sort of 10 topics with uh, mm-hmm. a bunch of additional questions underneath. Um, and then I then I uh, sort of cheated and added an 11th one in there. All right. I liked how you uh, were talking about, he asked you about the most inspirational leaders in the world today, and you commented on relatively young females. Mm-hmm. Would you mind just kind of echoing that that spirit? Sure. I don't remember exactly what my answer was on that. <laughs> But, but yeah, I, I you know I am in, inspired by um, the strength and um, tenacity and talent of 
of so many young women entering careers in in our water world today. I mean, we have so many incredible photographers and videographers from you know, from Ellen to um, you know Becky Kagan Shot and and then you know people who have been just incredible environmentalists like uh, Christina Zanotto are picking up cameras or Natalie Gibb picking up a camera and becoming really good <laughs> really fast and and I think it's wonderful because that's giving them a chance to amplify their messages and reach more people um, and I, I I really believe it's these global interconnections and um, and the sharing of experiences and media that can that can change the world I, I love the fact that you were uh, uh, your answer was directed towards young females which I know you feel strongly about mm -hmm. and and I do too. We've uh, <clears throat> it's been interesting in the early years of, of Future Frogmen how our, our team has been predominantly young ladies, mm. and uh, fortunately we we have a, a few young men joining us now, and and we're 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 interested in men and women of all ages, but uh, our traction has been with young females and now some young men. But the, the young people in general are I find very inspiring. Mm -hmm. They're very smart and. Uh, like you said, they're they're learning very quickly, yeah, oh, doing some they, great things. Yeah, and I think they see, you know, they've got to create the world they want to live in because they they have to live with the the, the consequences of of you know things created by our generation and and um, and they're they're ready. You know, they're not giving up. They're optimistic. They're going to change the world, and um, and that's exciting. As as you've been around them, and and I've been around them, I think it. Uh, it does give you hope, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, uh, it's, instead of losing faith, just uh, mm -hmm. being being hopeful and, and taking action because yeah. just, just hoping is not alone is not going to help. Mm -hmm. You have to take action. Well, and I think in our, our generation, there were an awful lot more gatekeepers. You know, there were a lot more, you know, hoops to jump through and glass ceilings to break, norms to, <laughs> norms to change. Um, but today with this global interconnected universe, um, these kids, nobody told them they couldn't do something. And so they just go do it. I mean, even in the, in the diving sense, you take a cave diver today and by the time they've created, they've completed a full cave diving class, they've completed dives that you know, 20 years ago might've been at the world record status. <laughs> um, and so they're, their vision is boundless, and and that's what we need at this challenging time in in human history. Yeah, that's that's well said, and I think there's also, in in my opinion, there's also a uh, an attitude like I'm I'm just not going to take it. I'm gonna mm -hmm. I'm gonna go for it. I'm gonna mm -hmm. I'm gonna I'm not gonna let anyone stop me. Like you you uh, you had mentioned on your podcast, uh, Greta, yeah. you know, yeah. who uh, just. Uh, <clears throat> She refuses to uh, mm -hmm. to tolerate it, and she's breaking yeah. through some norms, and yeah. uh, it's it's quite uh, admirable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They don't need permission; and, and <laughs> they just do it exactly. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and if I don't get permission, I'm not going to do. I'm 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 not going to I'm not going to wait mm -hmm. for it. And mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so. Um, Another thing you had talked about was, uh, which I loved, was dreaming big. Mm -hmm. it, it relates to the actions people take, but their careers and so forth. Can you sort of, uh, yeah, share your thoughts on that? Yeah. Well, you know, I truly believe in my heart that 
anything is possible and that we create the world that, that we want to live in and we create our, you know, our own career opportunities. Same, same thing. You don't have to ask for permission. You just, you, you know, you don't need someone to say, yes, I'll, I want you to be a filmmaker. You just go ahead and be a filmmaker and start your YouTube channel and it grows from there. Um, so with hard work, I, I truly believe that, that anything is possible. So we, we might as well dream big. The, the world ahead for young people is so different. I mean, they won't work for an organization for one person for the rest of their life and walk home with a pension. They will have to be mobile and creative and collaborative and interconnected and have multiple literacies and skills from, you know, being able to computer code to, you know, having a second language or, um, but, you know, with the internet, I mean, I'm not a scientist, I'm a citizen scientist, but I have to become an expert in every new field that I cover in a documentary or a film. And, and so all of that is at our fingertips. The library of the world is available and the, and the people to help you get somewhere are also available. So Jill, before we get to cave diving, you just mentioned cave diving and I'm very anxious to get there. Um, Let's go back, and uh, we're just talking about young people. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about how your career evolved, mm -hmm. if if we may. Sure. Well, I was a, a curious kid that, that didn't know what she wanted to take at university. I knew I wanted to, you know, continue to learn. Um, I was interested in science. I was interested in geography, environmentalism, um, and I'm also an artist. And faced with like the decision of trying to pigeonhole myself for the rest of my life, it was, that was a very tough thing to do. I ended up going to art school. I have a bachelor of fine arts and visual communications design, but that never, um, I never lost my interest in, in science. And so I kind of found the perfect job. <laughs> At first I had an ad agency in Toronto and I was a creative professional and extremely successful, but I, felt like I was doing what I loved in the wrong place. So I sold the business. I sold everything I owned and I moved to the Caribbean so that I could find a way to be creative underwater. And then slowly built this weird hybrid career of writing, cinematography, photography, consulting, you know, public speaking, um, teaching, uh, all of that, all of those activities that would allow me to dive, dive, dive as much as possible, be underwater and, and communicate about these wondrous things that I was experiencing. And you're growing up in Canada. Mm. And, and had you been exposed to the Caribbean before? No. Or did you just <laughs> go there? <laughs> yeah. Um, so, well, you know, I'd gone on some holiday vacation, diving holidays and things like that. And, and I was a scuba instructor as a hobby, teaching nights and weekends. Um, but I, I just knew that in order to create an underwater career, I needed a lot more dives under my belt. And, and I thought, well, no better place to do that than to you know, take my teaching credentials and, and go and work in the Caribbean for a while and take every chance I could to work on photography and work on videography. You know, I knew I needed to be diving three, four times a day rather than the, the times that were available to me in Canada in a much tougher, colder environment. You could dive more easily year-round as well mm. in the warmer water. Mm. Yeah, interesting. And then, uh, so you went from the Caribbean to Florida. I did, yeah. It, it, my life in so many ways is a series of accidents that connected well together. <laughs> but um, it, it all came down to, you know, 
volunteering for things and then paying attention, working hard, and then trying to build on the relationship with the people that I met on those teams to create further opportunities in the future. And, and so sort of one thing fell into another thing, into another thing. And, and there I was, I ended up in Florida um, and, uh, you know, developed my career there and lived in, in the U.S. for you know, 20 years as a home base. Well, I, I love that because, you know, no matter how you might try to plan a career, it, uh, it, it can be a, a series of accidents. Mm -hmm. uh, hopefully, if we're fortunate, they're all kind of good accidents that lead to uh, building the foundation and continued growth. Yeah. And, and, I and think, that, that's what happened for you. Yeah. I, I, and I think it's a really good lesson. I mean, when I look back to that young woman trying to figure out what to take at university, I, I would say to her today, this isn't the last choice you get to make in life. <laughs> you know, just keep learning, you know, take anything, you know, improve your critical thinking skills, you know, make connections, find out what fits, but just always be prepared to you know, ask for the gig, you know, when you meet someone that inspires you say, how can I be you? How can I work with you? Um, and, and, and be willing to shift gears, like always, you know, be prepared to say yes to the next opportunity because we never know, you know, who we'll meet that inspires us in life or what kind of things that will happen. But, but those choice is never the end. You get to choose every day. You know, I, I, who knows, talk to me 10 years from now and see what I'm doing. It might be in a completely different direction. And as, as we all know from this whole COVID world right now, there are a lot of forces completely out of our control that may completely shift our direction in life. And, and that's okay. Like continue to seek and explore and uh, the opportunities will come. Well, that's something that, that I say and we say as well, just say yes for, for at least two reasons. One is you may never have that opportunity again. Mm -hmm. You may be presented with a unique um, situation, and it just might not happen again if you if you don't go for it. Mm -hmm. You know, I always like to say, use common sense. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I feel like uh, like I said yes to Cousteau, and mm -hmm. there were. Uh, I know my final expedition was uh, rather frightening, but I was uh, I was glad I did it, mm -hmm. and uh, I, I just said yes, but. The uh, other reason I, I, I love what you said, ask for the gig, because it, it is also possible that you might ask for the gig and they might possibly say no, mm -hmm. but you never know what happens tomorrow or a year from now or five years from now. Mm -hmm. They might remember you that somehow, some way that opportunity or something like it may come back to you. So, mm -hmm. but if you don't ask, if you don't ask, uh, you don't, you don't get, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. And, and I also love what you said there, because you know I, I, I'm working with a lot of young people, and they're they're learning, and they don't always realize they're they're learning. You know, whether they're in their yeah. school years or in their early career, but you don't realize what you you're as, as they're telling you what they're do, working on, mm -hmm. maybe their second or third or fourth job. You're you're building so much knowledge, you don't even realize mm -hmm. it. And I guess we're we're all doing that. Hopefully, mm -hmm. we're all, it's something to strive for. Wouldn't you say? Absolutely, absolutely. So uh, I am curious, though, Jill. You were you were in Grand Cayman, I believe, mm -hmm. and you were really, as you mentioned, you were working, focused on your diving and your underwater photography. I, I'm I, I'm assuming you were not doing any cave diving there. 
but you went to Florida because you really wanted to work on your cave diving? Well, actually, is, I was um, poking around in the backwoods of uh, East End of Grand Cayman and looking for caves. Um, the, the East End wall of Grand Cayman is sort of full of little swim-throughs where you you enter a hole in the reef at, at like 55 feet deep, and then you swim through a tunnel and drop down off the wall at 100 or 120, 130 feet deep. And, and, and that's just enough to really... Uh, entice someone who's already interested in caves. Um, but I, so I went inland. I knew that those places offshore were former lower sea level sea stands. And so I thought, okay, well, there might be places like this on top of the, you know, limestone escarpments in the East End of Cayman. And I did find some some caves and, and begin my exploration in Cayman when one of my colleagues pulled me aside and said, you need to take a cave diving class. And I said, cave diving class <laughs> uh, at that point i actually had no idea that there was formal training in in the expert area of cave diving and he's like he's like sweetheart you're going to get yourself killed unless you you know mm. learn the proper techniques and safety procedures and i went oh well that's interesting okay <laughs> <laughs> but that's where it really began. So I had explored and laid line in my first, uh, you know, original exploration before I ever had a cave diving class. And thankfully, you know, a good person pulled me aside and said, you know, earn your chops. <laughs> mm. And in Grand Cayman, was that your first exposure to cave diving or did you have any exposure before that? Well, um, and this will sound uh, terrible, but on my fourth open water dive, so on my certification dive, we went into a place called the Caves or or the Grotto in in, uh, in Ontario, Canada. Now it's it's a very short uh, overhead environment tunnel that pops up into a, a cave where you can surface inside a, a, a cave. Um, so you know, as far as overhead environments go it would it would be on the lower risk area but completely inappropriate for a diver of my level of expertise at that time uh, but um, in going into that place swimming through that tunnel and then popping up into this 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 cathedral-like space that had a beam of sunlight coming through a small hole in the ceiling I was just mesmerized and so at that moment I knew I knew cave diving was in my future um, yeah, I, I would not recommend that to <laughs> to anyone on their fourth open water dive, but um, but certainly it planted a seed wow. for me. Yeah, so that's that's when it began for you. Mm -hmm. Not just scuba diving, not just underwater photography, mm -hmm. but that's that's what kicked off cave diving for mm -hmm. you. It sure did. For our listeners that uh, don't know what cave diving is, mm -hmm. can you explain it to us and how it is different, not only from regular scuba, but uh, even from typical technical diving. Sure, sure. Yeah, uh, most people when they hear cave diving, the first thing they think of are these people that jump off of cliffs into the ocean. <laughs> it's like, no, no, no. Cave diving is using scuba equipment, um, underwater exploration equipment to swim through water-filled passages into the planet where you have a roof over your head. Um, and these passages you could enter in you know landscapes in the mountains in uh, blue holes under the ocean like literally holes in the seafloor or um, even caves uh, that you travel through dry spaces until you have to get in the water and dive so there are many many 
underwater uh, cave environments around the world. And uh, they're extra challenging and extra dangerous because of that overhead environment. So the moment that you leave that ability to swim directly to the surface, you need to have a lot more training, a lot more equipment and expertise and quite a cool head, of course, because anything that happens underwater in that overhead environment has to be solved in place because you can't just get to the surface to breathe. You might have to swim you know, two miles out of branching conduits and navigation decisions to get back to a place where you can go to the surface. And, uh, and the caves themselves can be stirred up and silty, meaning that you must be able to make that navigation trip blind. Uh, so, you know, like I said, training, <laughs> expertise, and a lot of redundant equipment are necessary for that kind of diving. And by the way, uh, Jill, you just said into the planet, which is part of the title of your fantastic uh, new book, Into the Planet, My Life as a Cave Diver, mm-hmm. uh, by Jill Heinerth, is an uh, un- unbelievable read, fantastic, extremely well-written. I would highly recommend it to anyone. You do not need to be a diver of any type to enjoy the book. Oh, thank you. Uh, yeah, it's really a wonderful, uh, wonderful story. It's funny. It kind of ended up being, uh, I guess, good for this time. <laughs> I didn't write it for the pandemic times, but, but you know, the book's about, you know, my life and my adventures, expeditions around the world, uh, you know, inside icebergs and, and uh, other places. But, but really the book is, is about fear and about facing change and challenge mm-hmm. and difficulty and, uh, uh, you know, coming out the other side uh, with new revelations. And uh, and I think all of us are facing that sort of darkness and uncertainty these days. And um, and I hope it gives people a sort of a positive model about how to move forward. And, and that makes me think, Jill, as you were just explaining, uh, at least briefly, about uh, cave diving and what it's like to go through those passageways. And it's so critical to keep a, a calm head. How did you learn to do that? Did you have any, uh, I I have a feeling it just sort of came to you naturally, but did you have any like mental training to do that? How, 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 how did you achieve that? Well, I think that it takes experience to deal with fear. Uh, the, the most terrifying incident in my life I describe in the book is when I fought off a burglar (laughs) As a young woman in university, a man broke into my house and, and um, you know, without <laughs> drawing things out, it, it led to hand-to-hand combat, me fighting for my life with an X-Acto knife. But it started with me just like hiding under the covers in terror, <laughs> a natural rela- reaction to fear. And and, um, and from that experience, like it, it took me years to process all of that and and to take away a positive rather than a negative experience. Like I, I recognize now that I cannot change anything in my past, but but what I can change is what I do with those experiences and how I can use those to build more character or skills or whatever for the future. And so I think a series of, of experiences and incidents in my life really led me to be this calm, cool, collected cave diver today. But but even in diving, I had to have those those scares you know, that mm. built experience. And, and we all do. We don't know what it's going to feel like when the adrenaline, the adrenaline rush is, 
is so strong. Your head feels like it wants to explode and your heart wants to jump out of your chest. And so the first time it happens, you don't quite know how to process it all. But I've learned now that when something terrifying happens, that the emotions of that moment won't help me. They won't serve me well. And that I have to somehow take that deep breath and rid my body and my mind of those emotions just temporarily to deal with the issue at hand um, and focus on pragmatic small steps towards success and positive outcome. And then after I'm safe and it's over, I can process those emotions again. So I guess I've learned to, to separate that. And it, it wasn't easy. It took wisdom and experience and, and scares <laughs> to build that. Well, that's quite a quite a skill, and uh, the the scary thing is that when you're in an alien environment underwater, not everyone comes out the other side. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they might even be very well experienced, but there there may be moments when you you just don't react the way even you might know you need to react. Mm-hmm. Um, but but you've been fortunate and have the the talent to have uh, achieved those uh, exhilarating moments and uh, learn from them and just keep building upon them. So mm-hmm. really great message. I love the uh, emotional, mental conversation. I'm hesitant, but I, I want let's go back to a little bit of a technical conversation just again to give people a, a an even greater appreciation of cave diving because you you talked about redundancy for example and we we've seen if people uh, look up Jill on on the web you'll see Jill in some amazing robust gear mm-hmm. uh, can you just kind of paint a picture for us what mm-hmm. what do you put on for a, a typical cave dive to to yeah. protect uh, your your body yeah well I guess every dive is a little bit different but you know, some of the regular dives that I do, I, I will put on a dry suit. So a suit that completely seals my my body in, in uh, warmth, or it should. <laughs> so it seals around the neck and the wrists. My head will still be wet, but my body should be dry. And, and underneath that dry suit, I have to wear, you know, thick, lofty undergarments to keep me warm in this Canadian, uh, in the Canadian waterways up here. Uh, quite often for life support equipment, I'm using what's called a rebreather. And that is really the same thing that an astronaut wears on a spacewalk. So this is a, a device that rather than allowing your, your exhaled breath to escape as bubbles, it recapture those and recirculates them through a loop, scrubbing it free of carbon dioxide and injecting very minute um, oxygen injections to make up for whatever my body has metabolized. So this is like a gas blending station (laughs) on my back um, that allows me to manipulate that life support environment. And it has a lot of of backup and redundancy. So I I still carry extra scuba tanks in case that whole device fails and I need to uh, have a backup. And almost everything that I carry, I will have three of each item. So I might have three lights um, uh, in case I I start to have failures. I'll carry like several cutting tools and then um, spools of, of a guideline, a nylon braided guideline that we lay through the cave system that gives us a visual or tactile reference to follow out of the cave in case we lose visibility. Uh, so 
quite a lot of equipment. And then, of course, I'm always carrying an underwater camera and a big housing, whether it's a still camera or video camera, and quite often scientific or collecting equipment uh, for work I'm doing collaborating with scientists. Yeah. And when you mentioned silt before and losing visibility, that's where that guideline comes in, right? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And that's something people learn in a cave diving class. We spend a lot of time blindfolding (laughs) our students and having them just put a loose, um, you know, okay signal around the the line and letting the line slip through their fingers as they they swim out of the cave by feel uh, to get back to the open water. And you you just uh, were talking about, of course, carrying a camera, either a still or a motion picture camera. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I enjoyed your conversation uh, uh, with with Robert on your podcast about uh, the changes in, uh, like, basically, you had said the scuba equipment hasn't changed all that much, although it's there. There certainly have been some nice advancements since my heyday mm-hmm. in the in the '70s, mm-hmm. but. Uh, you you really uh, commented about the high tech, how mm. the computers and the lights and the cameras have evolved. Um, could you comment uh, on on uh, at least on the cameras? Oh, sure, yeah. Um, well, I remember, boy, I guess twenty years ago now when we took the first um, full you know HD ten eighty camera down to Antarctica, um, and that was like we were so blown away by being able to look at a single frame from the uh, the tape and 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 see like you know the full resolution of a photograph it was like oh my god <laughs> this is incredible um but to see where they are today i mean a gopro is mind blowing today um and then lights too i mean the the lighting technology has has been a, a huge improvement for for cameras as well it's not only gotten brighter but it's gotten smaller so the the first lights that we were using for some of these cave diving shoots for national geographic projects uh, like there was one set we called the great balls of fire and they were about three feet in diameter these giant spheres that were uh, originally meant to be mounted on the uh, mirror to uh, uh, to film the titanic and we had these huge spheres that we would one diver could carry one of these things underwater for uh, for a shot, and and today now you know people are carrying handheld lights that have just tremendous um, illumination. It's amazing. And then of course, uh, you were talking uh, in the early days uh, there was film, and now yeah. it's all digital. Oh yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean. You remember those days? You got twenty-four or thirty-six frames in the camera, and you don't have a preview. <laughs> you're just you're shooting based on your your knowledge and understanding of photography, and then you're waiting a week or two or longer to get your film developed, unless you're doing it yourself. And uh, then you get the results back, and you go, "Oh boy!" <laughs> <laughs> and we had to take such careful notes because two or three weeks later, you were like what f-stop was that (laughs) yeah 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 it's interesting the uh like 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 you we we use the nikonos and Mm -hmm. uh also um had uh land cameras in Mm -hmm. in how watertight housings and uh and then we had motion picture cameras and we'd ship the film off to los angeles no matter where we were you know it would go on a helicopter to a plane and then uh, off to Los Angeles to be developed. <laughs> mm, and uh, yeah. you never knew what, and you might have left that location 
uh, weeks before you even knew what the results were. So very challenging, and it's so incredibly amazing, the technology that's available mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. It's really amazing that you got anything in those days. <laughs> it is. <laughs> Truly. It, I mean, because you know is. how hard it is just to go to a place and wait for some natural phenomena or for some particular animal. You know, I could go to the Arctic for trips years after years trying to get a picture of a narwhal, you know. <laughs> and then to not be able to know whether I actually got the picture until I came home would be just, you know, devastating today. <laughs> yeah, and, and your comment about lighting is a uh, uh, an interesting one because uh, we had our archaic lighting. We had a, a generator mm -hmm. on a boat. Of course, you couldn't mm -hmm. you couldn't uh, you, you couldn't do this with cave diving, but we had cables that w would would uh, were attached to high intensity lights. I, I suppose you could in cave diving, but you'd have another another line, and it could be you know very I would think very dangerous. Well, interestingly, for a couple of the like early uh, IMAX and Hollywood gigs, we did use cable lights and cameras that fed all the way back to the surface. Like there was one Hollywood film that I was the underwater unit director for. We needed 18 people for a cave diving team to film a sequence inside a cave because the production wanted to see the live feed of what we were shooting. So we had um, about 10 people that were cable wranglers to ensure that the cable never never damaged anything in the cave or dragged along the floor or anything like that. And then some of the lighting, because the Mexican caves were shallow, we were either using natural holes in the karst landscape or we actually drilled a couple of holes um, down into the cave so that we could feed a cable and some of these large, you know, great balls of fire kind of lights into the cave. And then each um, underwater grip, a lighting person, would have one fixture and a giant garbage can lid. And we directed the scenes with um, full face masks. And so as we wanted the lighting to look natural as if it was produced by the cave divers themselves. So as, as the people on camera would swim through the scene, I would be yelling, uncover one, uncover two, cover one, uncover three, cover two, uncover four. And so that was them like removing this garbage can lid from blocking the light and slowly letting it illuminate the cave and then taking it out as the divers swam by. So there were some, you know, pretty crazy man hour intensive shoots for that, that, that kind of work, wow. you know, back 20 years ago. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, yeah. that's pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> but uh <laughs> Sounds uh, extremely complicated as well. Yeah, imagine 18 people cave diving team is insane. <laughs> Can, cannot imagine that at all. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We we'd we'd feed a single line down a cable uh, with with a lighting on it of what maybe maybe a pair one to two from a generator on a, a chaland of a boat on the surface, mm -hmm. and we'd have a cable tender down mm -hmm. below keeping mm -hmm. the slack, uh, and then a then a, a, a lighting person. Uh, lighting the scene, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, mm -hmm. it was uh, pretty pretty primitive. So, Jill, one one thought as I was looking at some of your uh, video and photography, and we see you in the images. How are you capturing the images of yourself? <laughs> <laughs> That's funny because right now I'm 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 shooting a documentary footage for a real blue chip documentary on the Great Lakes watershed and. Um, 
one, because it's COVID times and two, because it's a very small, high flow, cold, nasty cave, I'm doing it all myself. Um, and I'm on camera. So. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so there are times when I'm swimming with the camera outstretched on, you know, the equivalent of a selfie stick, you know, my biceps are quivering, <laughs> trying to control it. Um, at other times, I'm swimming into the cave, and I'm setting up the camera on a tripod, setting up the lighting, and I'm swimming through the shot. Um, so it, it takes a, a lot of time. But in, in this particular footage that I'm shooting, it's the safest way to do it. I can't put another person in this cave with me very easily or safely. And so I just need to methodically shoot a few shots um, on a dive and, and get the job done. Um, so I'll, although you know we do prefer that most people dive with a, a dive buddy, there are some instances where solo is, is, is a better, safer alternative. Mm -hmm. And this is, this is one of them for me. Hmm. Yeah, that, that doesn't surprise me because as I looked at those images, I, I was guessing that some of them you may have set up equipment mm -hmm. or been filming yourself. Mm -hmm. uh, but then yeah. other times uh, you, you might have a, a videographer with you as well. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, for 15 years, I worked with my colleague, Wes Skiles, mm -hmm. and, uh, and we were often, you know, passing the camera to each other because we were both in the, in the, in the shots. Um, and, and so we would sort of share that, share that, uh, responsibility at times. Mm. And, and, uh, as I understand it, when you moved to Florida, Wes became, uh, not only a great friend, but a, a mentor to you and taught you a lot about cave diving. Yeah. He, he, well, I was really, uh, already, a. uh, a cave explorer at the time, I would say he, he really opened up the world for me for, you know, film and television. And, uh, and I started working with him, uh, as a, as a producer and, and, uh, both on camera and, and, uh, underwater grip and just learning the ropes. Uh, so he really taught me a lot, but, but most importantly, he left me with a, a legacy of, of really understanding, um, our role as as communicators about conservation and environmental ethics, and uh, and his you know legacy continues today. Um, in fact, his his own daughter is this so incredible um, young filmmaker, photographer, environmentalist, and and that's that's pretty exciting. But he he inspired a, a generation of people to care about the Florida Springs and understand their role in protecting groundwater. And when you I think you just said environmental ethics. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, and does that basically lead to uh, your thought there about protecting our water environment specifically? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, no matter where you live on earth today, well, especially in this, in these unusual times, you cannot deny that humanity is interconnected. I mean, we saw one coronavirus case in you know the early part of this year turn into millions of cases in in the U.S. and then you know globally around the world. So nobody can deny that we are interconnected. That might be one of the best things to come away from this crisis is a a new understanding of ourselves as global citizens. But I like to tell people too that. No matter where you live on the on the planet, you affect the oceans. The ocean starts beneath your feet, and I'm often swimming through those spaces that connect you with your oceans. <laughs> um, so whatever you do on the surface of the earth will be returned to us to drink. 
and therefore protecting water in, in every form has to become, it has to be a basic human right for all of humanity. We have to have access to clean, sustainable drinking water and basic sanitation, or the world will live in a world of, of, of conflict. Um, we would do anything to get a drink of water for a child who is thirsty. Um, and that means that in order to prevent conflict, we have to ensure that everybody has access to it. Access and clean quality water as well. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I love the fact that, you know, you, you've you spent a lot of your career going into the planet uh, underneath uh, various locations and uh, you, you, you pay a lot of attention to, I believe, what you call the groundwater. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's all connected, whether it's on the top of a mountain, if it's in the sky, mm-hmm. if it's under your feet, it's all connected. Mm-hmm. So, Jill, it's been really wonderful to see you again and spend some time with you. Uh, if, if folks would like to learn more about Jill, can you tell us uh, the name of your uh, website? Sure. Easy to remember. It's intotheplanet.com. So you can check out my work and videos, photography. And and also, if you're interested in in my book, Into the Planet, um, it's probably easiest to find on Amazon worldwide these days, um, since so many places our bookstores are closed. Um, But it's it's available as a hardcover, softcover, audiobook, ebook, all iterations. Jill, before we close, uh, are there any other topics or comments that uh, you'd like to make? Well, I guess I'd just like to, um, you know, express to everyone listening that, that, you know, these are tough times. These are difficult times for everybody. It's a time when we're all more isolated than we're used to, to being, um, but it is a t- it's a thoughtful time. It's an opportunity for us to learn and expand our knowledge maybe step into the darkness a little bit and become explorers <laughs> in our own right and, and look toward building a, a better future for for everyone an equitable better future for the for the planet so in that regard despite the darkness despite the isolation i have great hope and optimism and uh, i think we will create the next world that we wish to live in that's nicely said jill thank you so much for being with us today and for uh, the great work that you've done. You uh, stay safe. Thank you. You as well. We hope you enjoyed the Blue Earth Podcast. If you want to check out more of our content, you can find us at futurefrogmen.org or on all social media at Future Frogmen. We release episodes every Monday, but until then, remember, anyone can be an ocean ambassador. Thank you. Thank you.